0: This episode of the Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by Tether. Get smart, get tethered, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work. Perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo.
1: Welcome to the Oedipus Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, an official agitator, friend and Yoda. Most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Sir Yoda. Hello, Yoda. I'm
2: excited about this one. We are talking with someone in one of my favorite places, architecturally, in Singapore.
1: Cool. Today's guest has a Bachelor of Engineering degree in Building Engineering from Victoria University of Technology in Melbourne. So you're speaking my language because I've also have a diploma in Building Construction Engineering. So that's it's a great field to be in. You're with the Project Management Institute, where he's managing director of the Association of Southeastern Nations. And uh, from his Singapore location, he oversees business development and spearheads the construction working group. Welcome to the show, Ben Brain. Thank you very much, Robert. Great to be here. Awesome. Ben, you've worked on some pretty amazing projects, Marina Bay Sands Project and Suntech Convention Center. And you've also founded several project management and design companies, so you've been a busy boy. Our uh, listeners are always interested in, in your origin stories, so tell us yours.
3: Sure. Yeah. Yeah, as you mentioned, I, I started off in, in structural engineering, a you know, degree out, out of Melbourne, Australia. Pretty soon, decided it was the, the right time to get out of Australia in you know the mid 90s, and I moved over to Singapore with no experience and, and no contacts of any kind. And uh, within a couple of weeks, I, I had a job working on a, an engineering project, you know, developing a, a, what was called a terrace workshop. And I was running that project, but soon realised I wasn't actually the best engineer. I was particularly good at telling other people what to do. So <laughs> progressed naturally into project management.
1: You sound a lot like my dad. He was very good at telling. No, that's not true. My ta- well, actually, my dad passed away, so I can say anything I want about him now. He can't. No. <laughs> he
2: can't put you upstairs. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's right. Well, you know, but it's, but it's important that, I mean, when you recognize your strengths and weaknesses and you moved on and evolved into this. So, yeah, keep, tell, keep, keep telling us the story. Yeah, so look, I I
3: really enjoyed that and I was, you know, thrown in the deep end. That's one thing Asia compared to, well, let's say Singapore specifically compared to if I was a fresh graduate working on a site in Australia, I'd be more likely to be washing cars than than actually building a building. So, you know, I I was pretty much within about six months, I I was running the project. It was very exciting. The learning curve was just amazing. So I was lucky to progress, you know, in my career of working for contractors, developers. I ran an interior design company for a number of years, working on some pretty cool corporate fit outs for you know customers like Facebook or, or GE or IBM. So some really interesting sort of cutting edge design work going on there. And then set up my own project management company, which I ran for a number of years. And and that's where I got involved in some of the projects like the Marina Bay Sands and Suntech. So just to touch on those two, because they are the absolute pinnacle of what I've done to date. And it was Marina Bay Sands. Those of you who don't know it, you might have seen it probably on you know the shots of the Formula One when they're going around the city skyline in Singapore. But it's the three towers with the uh, the bridge across the top that looks like a ship, $5 billion development with up to uh, 25,000 workers at any one time, logistically just wow. an amazingly complex project. So it was, it was wonderful to be a part of that. And the second one was the, the Suntec Convention Centre, which the convention centre was an existing convention centre and combined with the, the retail mall was about a $400 million development complex again because it was in operation when we started the construction so that added a level of difficulty and the remit really was to develop the most technologically advanced convention center in the world so it was you know amazing just the sort of integration of technology that we put into this place and we were privileged enough to to then well the convention center was voted the best convention center in the world the year after it opened up again so, so two, a, two projects, true, a lot of fun yes <laughs> Correct.
2: <laughs> that's, that's impressive, man. I mean, the marina base, that's one of the most iconic buildings in the world, I'd argue, certainly in yes. Asia. And uh, yeah, $5 billion, dollars. that's not shabby, right?
3: <laughs> it's not. I mean, it's a moshy, sufty design and, and it, it does look magnificent and just yeah. watching it being built and the engineering components because it actually is like a, an A-frame that had to be temporarily supported until about halfway up the building. And then you've got the largest cantilever on the world Uh, On top of that, with the longest infinity pool of 150 meters, it's just (laughs) wonderful.
1: So when you get (laughs) I (laughs) well, I got to be thinking that, you know, when you sign the contract and you go back to the bar for a drink and then you go, oh, crap, now what? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: And, And in fact, what happened is we had about a year to, you know, work with the designers in determining what was going to be built and our job was therefore, you know, to work out how to build it. And of course, as soon as we got up to the top of the Sky Park, once we were physically able to get up there, every single thing was different to the drawings that we were given. So, <laughs> that sounds sort of Middle East. <laughs> Welcome to reality. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So luckily there's a lot of, uh, you know, risk mitigation strategies put into place and, you know, we were able to very quickly sort of turn things around and redesign and, and get it done. So, as I said, exciting.
1: Yeah, this <laughs> is who owns the project? Yeah.
3: It's the Venetian Sands Group. So it's actually, you know, U.S. owned. Charlotte
2: Adelson, I think, the foreign from Vegas, yeah. He's the money man. That's it. That's it. Yeah. He's the money man behind a lot of things. <laughs> so, <laughs> on a job like that, this is where you hope the structural engineer has not bluffed his way through university, right?
3: that's it and luckily uh in singapore there's a term called kiasu and that means everything is essentially over designed we were working on another project a condominium project and when the you know 1997 when the financial crisis hit and the developer said well we don't have the money to finish this you know to the engineers can you please just go and, and redesign and see what we can save and they took out about 25% of the concrete and steel and said, yeah, it's no problem, it's still fine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I was a property development manager, you know, everything for me, all conversations revolved around minimising lift shafts, minimising concrete or steel, right, and working on the facade because those are the big three cost items. You know, if you can reduce steel by 10%, that's a massive,
3: massive saving. It yeah.
2: doesn't matter what you do with anything else. doesn't matter how awesome them chillers are you can take the steel content down 10%, you're a hero, right? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so Singapore as a destination, let's just talk about that quickly. I mean, Singapore is a fascinating place. To me, it's a bit like the Dubai of the Middle East, of Asia, sorry. So Dubai is this crazy, I describe Dubai as Disney World for architects and engineers and, and construction people because you see buildings there, you just don't see elsewhere, right? It's just a bit like New York in the 1930s. and I would say Singapore is the Dubai of Asia. You see developments there that are, you see architecture there that is daring and pushing the envelope. You see scale, which is amazing when you know how small and constrained Singapore is. I mean, the innovation there is actually quite impressive. So there's no question in that. I just wanted to say that because I'm so impressed with it. But I read something recently or a few months ago about planning laws in Singapore and how they are introducing a lot of green. What I mean by green is not sustainability, vegetation and greenery within buildings, and then incorporating that into skyscraper. And I read somewhere that there's some ratio where they have to have a certain amount of green space, like vegetation
3: versus usable space. Do you know anything about that? What is the status on that? Yeah. Urban Redevelopment Authority or the URA you know, governs all of that and put it in to perspective the size of singapore you know, you can you can drive from the airport on the east coast all the way to the west coast in about 40 minutes you know it, it's it's a very small island you know 80% of the population live in high rise flats therefore anything that is on the ground is treated sacredly and it's very strict in terms of the ratios of the built up area compared to the green areas and they do a very good job of that for sure and back to your comments about, uh, you know, being you know, the, the architectural sort of elements that are the really advanced and, and some wonderful looking buildings. Another thing they've done very well here is with the big projects where they've got a lot of money, they are definitely going out with design competitions to international, you know, design mm-hmm. firms. And I, I mentioned Moshi Safdi, he's done quite a few buildings here and you've got, you know, Lord Norman Foster and other just wonderful architects at Come in and get involved and develop some amazing projects. So you know, there's a there's another one within Changi Airport at the moment, which there's a billion dollar development of a dome. You know, there is no columns in the entire dome; it's all self-supporting with a with an oculus that drops down through the middle of it, which is just phenomenal. So you have to you know get online and check this out because it's just brilliant to go and see. Yeah, hopefully when people can travel again, they can actually yeah. come and see
2: it. <laughs> I went through Asia recently to a project in Japan and I don't know, I mean, North America is awesome. I mean, I love living here, but I feel Asia is a, a generation ahead in terms of their buildings and the envelope. They're pushing with the buildings and yeah, just the infrastructure in general. It's, 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 it's fascinating to me. So we talked about green and I mean vegetation, but what about the state of sustainability? What's the state of play there? Because there's a... There seems to be a worldwide, rightly so, push to make buildings more efficient, more sustainable. I hate that word sustainable. Let's talk about, let's call that high performing. High performing in terms of energy efficiency and reducing impact on the environment. What's the sort of state of play with that cult slash religion in Mm -hmm. Singapore?
3: Yeah, it's it's taken very seriously in in all new buildings. It's all governed by the the building control authority, and essentially contractors will get points for how sustainable something can be done. You know, whether that's a, right. a precast element or a, or yeah. a different type of, you know, whether it's a, a chilled beam system for heating or, or well, also cooling here, and you know, whatever it is, they essentially get points, and and in fact. Contracts are awarded to companies that are more innovative and are showing more sustainable techniques. So the government's definitely heading in the right direction in trying to implement as much of that as possible and and making it compulsory. All new buildings have to be designed in BIM and so that any other works that are done subsequent to the construction will all be captured in BIM. You'll see all of your services crossing through the building. You know exactly what you can and can't do. So yeah it's it's definitely very much at the forefront of that sort of uh, sustainable design.
1: Well if you think about it that, I mean then the government really is providing it sounds like some leadership within the industry because when you look at North America our governments are not providing any leadership at all I mean they're all talking the talk but we don't see you know them providing a leadership role it seems like industry is driving it and so there's just conflict that exists i think between what the culture of construction sees happening at a, a different rate than what governments are willing to sort of step up and support. It's, uh, it's very frustrating. Adam, I don't know what your comments are on that.
2: Yeah, I agree. One of the fascinating things for me, I came from the UK, which is probably going to be moved to a federal model eventually with Scotland Ireland, and Northern Ireland and Wales, but it's a small country relatively, so adjusting the building regulations or the building code is, is easier because it could be done by dictat, almost, right? So I always remember when I was there before I moved to North America, there was this big hoo-ha because the government were really going to get tough with the building regulations and, and they said every five years we're going to make it tougher. Building efficiency and all the construction firms went, this is terrible, we're never going to build another building in the world. You know what? Buildings are more efficient and buildings are still going up. So boo-hoo. So moved to North America. So what I didn't realise, Canada is basically 10 territories and loosely stapled together. It's actually like 10 different countries. <laughs> and America's 51 versions of that, right? So yeah. getting anything done has to go through municipal, state or provincial, then federal. So changing the building code is just this. It's like trying to turn the Titanic around before it hits the iceberg. It's so difficult, right? You can't really do it by dicta. And I think the reason North America stays together is because it's loosely governed. But the downside to that it is very hard to implement something that needs to happen quickly. Like, you know, we've got to just say the president woke up one morning, you know, Mr. President, three cho- impossible choices. We've got to really drive building efficiency. He says, we're on it, and I'm going to sign executive order. You know what happened? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> just yeah, that's sign that happened. field down to the <laughs> municipality. That horse would be a four-humped camel.
1: <laughs> would you, you agree with that? Yeah, it's, uh, totally. I mean, I've been in front of the committees to try to get change, behalf of some clients. And it is incredibly difficult. And the committees, it's basically all volunteer. I mean, they're all competent individuals, but there's a culture within the building code in Canada, for sure, that's all based on minimum requirements. And, you know, to some degree, I I agree with that. But what happens, of course, is that the minimums uh, become maximum in practice. And so Mm -hmm. until we can change the minimums, We're always going to have the systems and the buildings that we have. And, of course, society suffers over that, over the lifetime of the the existence of that building, right, built under such a a program. It doesn't sound like that's the case in Singapore at all.
2: No, I can see the look on Ben's (laughs) face. It's
3: it's interesting because I was just comparing this to to Australia. I was recently invited to be a witness on a Senate inquiry into a submarine program that's going on in, in Australia and is already this is something like an 80 billion dollar project over the years and we were asked to get involved because there is already issues with you know delays and, and cost overruns and you know what can be done to improve this and what was interesting is that there was a similar inquiry about 5 years ago which i just referred to that and said actually PMI agrees with what was discussed 5 years ago at a, at a similar hearing in the way to you know improve Mega projects make them more efficient, and certainly make uh, the likelihood of success a lot higher. You just need to follow these sort of rules, these things yeah. that have been discussed, and have some good project managers in place that are that are well trained and certified, and having project sponsors in place that are working very closely with the project team. And I can see that there'll be another inquiry in, in five years. that will be asking exactly the same questions. So, yeah,
2: be it a, definitely, very it's politics, right? <laughs>
3: That's it. It's uh, yeah. Consultants get paid a lot of money to uh, to attend. Uh, we were attending as a uh, you know as a not for profit company and, and doing it for free to contribute. So, <laughs> but yes, things. It depends on the country you're in as to how, how quickly things change and it can be very frustrating.
0: Yes. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment.
1: Robert, Robert, are we there yet? I'm bored. I <laughs> you know it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep. They're an innovator in smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy.
2: You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century?
1: Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it, and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains.
2: Okay, I'm in. How
1: do I find out more? Got to go to censorsuite.com or call 1-855-773-6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Suite
0: CEO Glenn Spry. And now, back to the show. Adam, we should get Ben to talk
1: about PMI just so that people understand what the organization's all about, where you yes. are, and all of that. Just like give everybody sort of a brief overview.
3: Sure, yeah. So I joined PMI about a year ago. So off the back of of the other things that I was telling you, I was given the opportunity to to head up the business in in Asia Pacific. And I thought, well, what a what a wonderful opportunity to do something that I'm very passionate about and you know advocate for project management all around the world. So essentially PMI is a not-for-profit organization. It's the largest professional organization that that works across the project. Portfolio and, and program management. We represent about three million people around the world in more than two hundred countries now. So it's PMI is is absolutely everywhere around the world. We have I think about six hundred thousand members at the moment. Certifications is is our our, you know, our core business, and we have about one point five million people certified. The largest of which is PMP. Of which, speaking to Adam, he's a holder of the PMP certificate as well which is great. And our CEO, Sunil Prashara, what he, he likes to, to say is the secret source is our volunteers. You know, we have about 14,000 volunteers and wow. just you know, pre-COVID seeing, the, uh, seeing these volunteers at events and, and now even what they're continuing to do, the sort of passion and, and dedication that they put into the project management field is just amazing. I really enjoy being a part of, uh, of PMI and like the things that we stand for and we're pushing for all around the world. That's
2: amazing, actually. The, the scale of that—I didn't realise quite how big. I knew PMI was big, but you know, that's incredible. The, the size and scale you're talking yeah, about there—you actually yeah, do that, have one of my dream jobs, actually. Yeah, you're you managing director that in that such an exciting part of the world as well, right? Where there's so much going on.
3: And that's been a big part of the new PMI, if you like. I'd say, you know, there had been, we've been around for 50 years, so it's yeah. it's a very well-established organization. As I mentioned, the CEO, Sunil, he joined probably about a year and a half ago, and there was definitely a lot of transformation that's going on. People had said, oh, okay, yes, you've been doing great things, but uh, are you evolving? Are you getting better and, and adapting to the environment? And we were, but I would uh, be the first to admit that we were doing it too slowly. Right. So it's been a really concerted effort into internal transformation first and then you know being able to to help others off the back of that. And a big part of that was the regionalisation effort that we put into place. So there are now, you know, eight different managing directors looking after the various regions. Six of those have been brought on recently for part of this, this regionalization effort, oh. and, and others others in North America and, and China have been there for many, many years, more than 20 years. So it's a good combination of some new blood coming in with some great ideas as well as working with something that works very well and has for a long time, and we're tweaking it to make it even
1: better. You know, I just to put that into perspective for our listeners. ASHRAE have like 57,000 members. I think AIA, the American Institute of Architects, has something like 130, 140,000 members, if I remember correctly. That, again, that's, and those numbers are, could be a few years stale. So you're at 600,000 members. I mean, that's a, that's, it is mind-blowing. <laughs> I, when, I think about what, when I think about how difficult it is for organizations like ASHRAE trying to accomplish what you guys have accomplished uh, in such a short order, it would be very challenging. And maybe it's because we're engineers and, <laughs> and not project managers. Either, but, you know, and it's thing with AIA, which is, you know, two and a half times the size. I, I, yeah, I should, I should get the numbers on AIA, but it's at least twice as big as ASHRAE. But a third the size or a fourth the size of your organization, that's a pretty good story you guys have to tell.
2: That's crazy. Yeah. I guess you've got growth, right? Because you're multidisciplined and worldwide. I mean, the growth potential must be pretty huge as well.
3: Yeah, I I think that's, you know, one of the advantages of the PMP, as I mentioned, that's our largest certification, that it is across all sorts of industries. Uh, So it does allow us to, to really have that width and touch points with so many people. But having said that, it is still better known in North America, for example, than it is in Asia. So that's also part of my role is to raise the awareness, although we still have a lot of members and Particularly, if you look at Asia Pac in its entirety, China obviously mm-hmm. is growing at an amazing rate. You know there's so much work going on there. It's definitely being able to grow faster in China than it is say in north america so we we want to try and balance it out and make sure that it's it's well represented all around the world.
1: and funding comes purely from membership dues is that memberships and and certifications
3: so yeah that that's the the primary source, yes.
1: Yeah. And on the certifications, is that, I mean, once you get the certification, is it held for life or do you have to do renewals or? Yeah, it's usually, it depends on the certification, but the PMP, right.
3: for example, every three years you renew it. And it's very important as well. We, we make sure that people are keeping up with the latest you know trends and, and uh, continually improving themselves. So we have professional development units that you need to achieve. So the PDUs have to be achieved within that period of time yeah. to be eligible again to renew. And it, it's a difficult certification to get. There is a lot of time and effort that goes into studying it. So you do want to hang on to it once you've got it.
2: Should be hard to get, right? Because that makes it valuable. I mean, this is the thing. Things that are too easy to get have no value. Correct. And yes. potentially, if you're a project manager, you're leading a project, you're leading something, right? There's there's a expectation of performance there that has to be yes. met.
3: To even qualify to sit for the exam, that's a process in itself to to prove that you have, you know, minimum five years of experience and and a certain number of hours leading projects, not just involved in projects, but actually leading projects. It is something that is uh, sought after. And I think statistically, we can demonstrate that uh, average salaries go up something like 20% when you have a PMP certification. So it's, it makes it worthwhile. It's not just a piece of paper. It, it, it's improving somebody's ability to deliver projects or, or whatever it is they're working on, and it also helps them to get more money in their pocket. So yeah. it's a win-win.
2: For our international listeners, just FYI, that was an interesting stat Ben just put out there. So there's on average a 20% lift in in bumping salary or earnings if you get a PNP. The reason I did the PNP when I was emigrating from the UK to Canada, I just online like the troll I am. And I read somewhere that PMPs earn more money than professional engineers in Canada. So I literally went out the very next day, bought the PMP book and started studying.
3: <laughs> right.
2: That's the guy I am. All about
1: the money, all about e- the Benjamins. E- greedy, greedy bastard, you Adam <laughs> <laughs> Well it's but a reality, isn't it? It, it <laughs> is a reality. Listen, you bring up a good point, and that is, and one thing that I really struggle with is the difference between qualified and certified. We have a number of institutes in North America that certify people And I would suggest that a large percentage of those people are not qualified. They may be certified, but they're not qualified. But where the PMI Institute, having the requirement for professional developments, having a requirement to be able to sit to write the exams, that really does elevate the designation. There's no doubt about it. And we need to do that here in North America is to raise that benchmark. Good on you guys for that.
3: Yeah, it's very much about continual learning and you know the membership itself that it just gives you access to to so much information, you know, white papers that are being developed. We have something that's called the signpost Report. So, you know, after we do we survey all of our customers, we get feedback on, you know, what are their particular risks that they see coming up in the next 12 months or what are the opportunities and we put that together in a signpost report which is a very detailed document that highlights you know what are not just in project management just general global risks and opportunities in in the marketplace so it's a really powerful document as are so many other things that you can get online once you remember so you know if we're able to provide that sort of continual upgrading of skills a lot of it is through free you know, seminars and webinars and things like that. And then there is the the certifications, which you can really map out what's the certification that you want at each level, whether it's sort of an entry-level project management with something that we call the CAPM certification through to a PMP, very professional type, five to 10 years experience, through to another product that's called Brightline, which is our essentially C-suite level personnel that are looking to transform an organization not just run a project but actually transform organizations so there's something for everybody
2: that's interesting because a lot of big organizations go through it so they always go through the, the matrix project management model and then there's the business sort of repurposing model and there's so many different ways to do it right so that's interesting you're targeting that as well about that. let's talk about specialists versus generalists so I have a bit of a love hate relationship with the sort of pinbok approach because its genius is that it is taking something that can be very specialist and turning it into a process. It's almost a Taylorism, Fordism approach, right? Break it down to its constituent parts, do this, move on to this, move on to this right? That is great because it's bringing structure to chaos in a way, right? But then there's the other side of taking the built environment, is, is the best example I know. You know, if you're running a large project like Marina Sands, you know, there is a need, I would suggest, for specialist knowledge, right? There's the skill stack phenomenon. It's a big, so I'm a big fan. Of. So to manage the Marina Sands, there's the skill stack of project management, leadership soft skills, communication skills, and technical skills, knowing when the structural engineer looks like he's wobbling and knowing when the concrete guy's blowing smoke up your bottom, yeah.
3: So, do PMI recognise specialism? It's interesting that, you know, the PMP itself, as you mentioned, is, you know, a generic certification. That is one of the reasons it's been so successful because it does cover so many industries. At the same time, there is, say, in construction, for example, there is a construction extension that gives you the next sort of level of, of detail. But it's still not all the way down to, you know, process and systems of how to deliver projects. and you mentioned the the pmbok that's our pm body of knowledge and yes. really that pmbok or the pmbok guide describes knowledge within the profession of project management it includes you know traditional practices that are applied but it's not a methodology right so it, what it provides really is a foundation for organizations to build off the pmbok guide and develop that further so it's interesting because as I mentioned one of my remits is really looking at the construction industry specifically and this is something that right now we've heard from a lot of our customers that it would be great if there was something even more specific that they could look at to improve the efficiency of running projects and you know make sure that their people are getting better and therefore their, their project delivery outcomes are improved. So that's exactly what we're looking at right now. We've now Just finished the exploratory stage of discussing with hundreds and hundreds of project leaders around the world, getting their feedback on the pain points of delivering (laughs) construction projects, of which there are many. (laughs) many. (laughs) I mentioned that pulse of the profession survey that, that we did. That indicates that of every billion dollars spent, there is about $114 million that is wasted. I wow. think that's on the, on the light side, actually. I think it's probably even more than that, but it's a huge amount of money that is wasted every single day on projects through inefficiency. You know, the typical pain points apart from the cost overrun are the, the time overruns. It's something like nine out of 10 projects overrun the original target.
1: Out of a billion dollars on a project, $114 million is wasted. That's it. Is that, is it yes. that's, that's a huge that's chunk right. of money. So that's on a, Marina Sands, you were project manager. You wasted five tons of <laughs>
3: <laughs> We were very efficient. Yeah, that's in that, an that industry is, average. It's an amazing number.
2: That is freaking... See, it's great to put it in numbers like that because that means something to an engineering nerd like me.
1: <laughs> well, you think about the value of that that money, like $100 million and change, where that could go in terms of educating members of the industry. There's just so much opportunity lost by having that money disappear. I mean, it doesn't disappear. I mean, somebody bought a, probably a Learjet Jet with it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> went away yeah, to some but... vacation spot. But I mean, that's—I say that facetiously. But there's a, there's a lot of money there that otherwise could be going to some really valuable work, education being right. one of them. Right? How many homes could you build with that? Yeah, yeah.
3: exactly.
2: Right.
1: and And right?
3: I, I yeah. think the money is one thing, but it's also just a lack of consistency on delivering projects and not having a consistent language. You know if you deliver yes. a, a project in one country and you go to the next and you you ask for something, they'll say, "What are you talking about? You know it's just di- different. Um, <laughs> <That's> so, <laughs> yeah, so you know we have started to look in developing a certification in you know in construction management that addresses these concerns. We want to make sure that we're bringing that consistency. We're bringing you know, new innovation as well to, to really transform the industry. And hopefully, we can take the learning experience from the ability that we have to partner with so many wonderful companies all around the world, bring that knowledge in and develop something off the back of that, that if we're able to help change those statistics in, in just a small way, then we would have been successful.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um... Sorry Adam, (laughs) I still can't get my head around that that stat. Yeah, no, shit. Um, (laughs) With those kinds of monies, I got to be thinking that you're working with some universities and colleges around the world in developing their project management curriculums because, I mean, how could you not If with that kind of dollars at risk?
3: Yes. Yeah, definitely. So we have the PMI Education Foundation which actually just turned 30 years old and... That Educational Foundation really works very closely with, I could be wrong with the numbers, but I think it's something like 70,000 different education providers all around the world. And, you know, it's amazing what they're able to do. And we in the regions are then able to collaborate with them and their relationships with the schools. And we're even talking into, you know, primary and secondary school level of education going in and starting to talk about project management because it's
1: such a big part of everyday life. Holy uh-huh. crap, I got, I got goosebumps when you said that. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a life it, skill. It is a life skill. And, and so why I, gotta, why I think I got the goosebumps is because, you know, with this thing with COVID, I mean, parents all over the world are struggling with sending their kids back to school. When you think about kids that are in grade, in the upper, you know, 10, grade 10, grade 11, grade 12, 13 in some countries, like you said, Adam, it's a, it's a life skill. Yeah. And the fact that, that this material could get into those curriculums, that's huge. I'm not yeah, that's what we're trying to start for a while. We <laughs> could, we could, we could teach kids all <laughs> over the world how to manage their bedrooms. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. So. I, don't, I don't think we'll win. We won't win that battle. <laughs> <laughs> some one comedian said it. I was, I can't remember what what they were on some kind of a spiel that basically said, you know what, we've given up. We've put coat hooks on the floor because that's where the kids' clothes are anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: there's, another, right. there's another there's another mind blowing stat that He said. Nine out of ten projects finish late. Fact check, true. Yeah, wow. Right? Eh? I mean, so in the Middle East, like finishing on time is just like a, a suggestion. It's just like an idea, you know, it's like we might do. But there's a, I don't know if you're aware of him. There's a guy who's head of um, mega, he's a Danish professor and he's uh, the chair of project management at Oxford University. His name's is Ben okay. Freiberg. His specialism is like mega infrastructure projects, like hundreds of billions of dollars of project. His stat is only 1% of major infrastructure projects finish on time and in budget. Wow. 1%. It is nuts.
3: Ridiculous. If
2: he's a
3: doctor, man, how how many dead people is that? (laughs) Exactly. And we even had a a very large customer come to us recently. He was the the COO of the organisation and he said, I've recently moved from the US to, to Singapore and talking to my project managers of which they have hundreds and hundreds, they don't do any project programs or or scheduling. And when he asked them why, they said, Oh, because it'll change anyway. So what's the point? And (laughs) so I I literally had to go into this organization to teach them the benefit of and I referred to that Miranda Bay Sands project and the fact that everything was different as soon as we got to site. But if you have planned and you have these contingencies in place and you're able to pivot very quickly and be agile and uh, yeah. This is where Agile does come into construction if you, yeah. you've got backups and you've prepared everything in parallel and when the critical path hits you go boom and you slot it in. That's the reason why you need to be doing
0: program and, and programming and, uh, and and trying to understand the risks. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment.
2: Robert, I have questions. Why aren't our buildings more like cars? Shouldn't our buildings warn us if something is wrong and could impact our health and safety? Why can't our buildings so so efficiency they're working? Why, 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 why?
1: <laughs> well they fit Adam and they can, you know? Our philosophy is designed for people, good buildings follow. This whole indoor environmental quality thing is becoming real important all around the world. Well, Tether have developed a mobile access property identity engine, and that enables landlords and property managers to monitor indoor environmental quality metrics, plus energy consumption. It's all about making better decisions based on real-world information. Get smart, get tethered. For more information, go to tether.co.nz. And you can also hear from Tether CEO Brandon Van Blurk on our June 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast.
0: And now, back to the show. Do you guys develop your own uh,
1: software tools for this, or is this how does that work? Not in construction
3: specifically. So I- anything that, that we would develop is around our, our certifications and our online training, but we're not developing tools I take that back we we have recently been developing some we have what's called the executive council so this is an invitation only you know fortune 500 and equivalent around the world that are invited to come and get together and you know, elite networking opportunities but really brainstorming and, and talking to each other about what's going on in, in their respective industries and one of the things was saying how can we have some you know you could say a gamification of a process in project management so it can really get the young people involved and understanding it easily. So you can sit on an app and say, right, I have a project. You know, who are the stakeholders? What are the timelines? What are the objectives? And it just makes it very easy for new project managers to jump onto an app like that and, uh, and start getting excited about project management and allowing them to start running projects. So we do, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. On the psychological side, what makes a good project manager? What makes a bad project manager? <laughs> I mean, Adam sort of touched on it before
3: as well in you know, talking about soft skills and communication. And the SunTech project, for example, I, uh, you know, I had the most qualified project manager with all sorts of degrees and, and certifications running the project. He was absolutely the best person for the job on paper. And I had worked with him before but he came in and it was just overwhelming there was fifty different consultants shouting at the same time and if you do not have the ability to communicate well and understand where people are coming from but at the same time say no what you're telling me is not correct and then we need to do it this way and I ended up bringing in somebody else who on paper is not as qualified but he does have those communication skills and he just turned it all around you know it was a, a, amazing to see that sort of thing so The soft skills, and now what we're calling sort of the power skills, like, you know, empathy and understanding and really listening to other people's point of views before making a decision. You know, these are all very important, more so now than they were ever before. And does the Institute teach those skills? So, we do. It's a very big topic in our, you know, webinar series or our, and in fact, even the PMP is being changed. Next year, early next year, to reflect those sort of changes in communication skills and particularly a little bit more in, in, in an agile manner as well. So, you know, we, we have to be able to listen to people and say there are things that we can tweak and improve. And that's exactly what we do. You know, they're not a certification, if you like, but they are part of uh, the entire package of being a good project manager, of which we, we do cover.
1: Yeah, I mean, both Adam and I have taken some uh, NLP courses over our career, the neural linguistic yeah. programming, and mm-hmm. you know whether you're a practitioner of NLP or not, one thing it, it does do is it does draw attention to the mechanics of communication, backed by empathy, like you know in terms of true characteristics and. I don't know about you, Adam, but for me, that made a difference in my career. And I, and I was fortunate enough that I, that I learned some of the skills early on. Mm. As you develop your career, of course, conflict is part of that. And how you manage conflict and understanding how people, different people process information through different modalities, I guess, right? Yeah. So does the Institute have anything along those lines? Or is it just, have you, where's the core of your communication programs? Like, where's it based on, I guess is what I'm asking. I'm not sure whether we go to that level of psychology,
3: and I'm certainly not the expert across all of our products, so I would probably have to defer to someone else on that question. Fair enough. I think
2: that will become more prominent, though, because one of the reasons that... Architects dominate the client relationship is they're better communicators. Engineers get pushed to the side because they're not great communicators. Typically, I'm generalizing before anybody gets triggered here. Just <laughs> down, <right>? but, <laughs> I'm an engineer. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, it, when I was a development manager, it fascinated me how architects dominate the relationship. They get you in their tractor beam, right? They hypnotize you. And the poor engineer who might have something completely valid to say doesn't know how to overcome that because they don't have that level of communication skill, typically, all right, everybody, typically. So <laughs> um, yeah, I can't emphasize enough how valuable that soft skills training was to me. It was an absolute game changer. But then you wind up being a project manager, right, because when you start stacking on soft skills, communication skills to a, to a, a foundational technical skill, all of a sudden – you you're running stuff, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You, had it, you had it with a nickname of like Vioda. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and, and, and that's when you also become just so much more valuable to any employer. You know, yes. when you're able to yeah, combine totally. those skills together, it's just yeah. a, a, an amazing combination.
2: Absolutely. We're coming up to, towards, I want to be respectful of your time. We're coming towards the end, but I just do want to touch on your time in Singapore when you, you said you started a few. Project management firms, what was that like, starting a new firm in a new country?
3: It was exciting. I felt like I had helped other project management firms yeah. to, to grow and I was therefore confident that I could do it myself. So that was the first thing. And it was exciting to be able to really just get out there. And I had already been in Singapore for whatever it was, 15 years, so I knew the market very well and I was confident, put it that way. Yeah. And and it was exciting. It it was it was great to work for yourself and make all the decisions yourself. At the same time it's always stressful running a, a small just, business just and a tad. being accountable for, for you know, we had about thirty odd people at Marina Bay Sands and just making sure that you had enough money coming in to, to pay the bills. But I think that's it's all uh you know part of the entrepreneurial side of it. If you you learn so many different skills across that and I'm happy to have entrepreneurs Working in any team that I'm involved with, whether they're staff or or partners, because I think they do uh, think a little bit differently and and can see the bigger picture.
1: Yeah, yeah, the macro thinkers, right? Well, their survival is is dependent upon it. Yeah, (laughs) because if you don't, you're done, right? That's something about businesses. It's well, it can be very punishing, but it does give opportunities. So if you're not, you know, like if and I mean, Adam and I are also. Well, I'm basically unemployable. I couldn't work for anybody. It's just... (laughs) And so the risk-taking is huge. And you use the word confidence, and you have to have some confidence, but also respect for fear. But don't let fear drive you, right? I mean, you have to to respect it. Fear really is there to remind you what path you're on. (laughs) And... uh, and But embrace the fear. I, I've always been someone who embraced the fear, and it's taught me a lot over my career and over my life. And, and we certainly, in our touch points, in, the, in our circle, we try to get people to understand fear is a good thing. But don't let it destroy you. Don't let it, you know, obviously override your, mm-hmm. your life, but use it yeah. as a guide. Yeah, I, I
3: think it, if you're not fearful of something, you're, you're staying in your safe little boundaries, in your little comfort zone, and that means you're not, you're not growing. So fear is definitely good, something to be embraced and it can help drive you to, to do much better things.
1: Well, yeah. And we always teach like the four stages of learning, right? So you have unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and unconscious competence, right? And so you go through these four stages where you absolutely know dick shit, you don't know nothing, to where you've evolved your skills where you actually know everything. And the dangerous places to be is in, is in phase one and four. In phase two and three, you're actually learning stuff. And so staying in that zone of, I know what I'm doing, but I could learn a lot more (laughs) is a really valuable place to embrace and get comfortable with that, right? The other thing to be
2: clear on, failure is not necessarily bad. It wounds you, your ego gets a good kick in the head, which is not a bad thing either. But, you know, Let's say you're a project manager. You've got skills, so you start a project management firm. If it doesn't work out, you're still a project manager. No one's taking that away from you. You can still go and get a job. (laughs) You you just didn't hit the ball out of the park with your business, right? Or or you're an engineer or you're an architect or you're an, an accountant, whatever. Yeah, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you're taking some lessons away from it and don't do it again, you know. <laughs>
3: yeah. And, and, and I've heard an analogy of saying, and particularly with, with the, the youth now, is that, you know, they're not going to a job and expecting to stay there for the rest of yeah. their life, obviously, you know, that those days are over, even in Japan. But they're effectively, they've got their little backpack and they pick up some certain, you know, tools yeah. along the way from each, each job that they do and they whack them in the backpack and then they... They go off and, and use all of that together with their combined knowledge to uh, you know create whatever it is they're trying to create. Yeah, that's so interesting. I,
2: I, it was interesting here you talked about empathy as well a while ago. It reminded me of a joke someone told me. They said, "You know, empathy is in the construction business. It's God. I really feel sorry for you. I'm going to have to crush you completely and kill you. <laughs> but I feel for you. <laughs> I feel your pain. Here we go." <laughs>
3: As I charge the liquidated damages for finishing late.
2: Because <laughs> yeah, everyone's Prince Joffrey deep down in construction, right? <laughs> we're coming to the end. We normally do a sort of rapid fire, couple of questions each, just to get some sort of advice out there for people. I always like to think when we started the podcast, we're trying to highlight people who are doing great work and organisations that are doing great work and just any insight that can come. So are you okay for a couple of quick rapid fire questions? I'll do
3: my best, yes.
2: Okay. All right, I'll, I'll kick it off And So what advice would you give to, say, a female graduate coming into the project management field?
3: Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't even sort of define sort of between female and, and male. I'd just say as, as a, a project manager coming into the field, it's always about, you know, listening and learning and, and then applying as quickly as you can and then also challenging, not just, you know, your boss says do something you do it. It's very much about challenging and saying, why is it done like this? And understand that, you know, the core elements of what's going on in what you're doing, because then your learning experience will just be so much greater.
2: Great. I like that. Not differentiating. I don't think it should be female. Is it male? It's just, I'm here, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's it. So out of all the fields that PMI works with, what are the fields of study? So if I, you know, if we've got kids that are, you know, 16, 17, 18, looking at their future, what do you see that are the, the long-term fields that are evolving that these kids should be looking at?
3: Yeah, what's interesting with the kids today is that a lot of them are very much looking at what contribution can they have on the world? You know, what what can they, it's not just about a profession that, that they are looking at, it's how can they contribute And often it's around the environment or, or, you know, other great initiatives. So that's something that that PMI looks very carefully at as well, whether it's corporate social responsibility or it's, you know, last year we teamed up with the UN Sustainability Goals and and we contributed about 150,000 hours to, you know, whatever it is, you know, clean water or or poverty or, you know, what there's about 40 different UN Sustainability Goals. I think those things resonate a lot with, with kids today. And they look at how are they making the world better. And then they're able to, to say, well, okay, this, this particular company offers me the opportunity to make the world better. And at the same time, I'm also developing skills in whatever it might be. And obviously, I will talk about developing project management skills. And that could be, as we said, across uh, whole different sectors. But I think if you start with that, a lot of it now is from the heart rather than the, the mind. And I think that's a, a great place to start.
1: Oh, That's great God. words. I don't, you know, yeah. any of the business leaders that are listening to the podcast, how to make the world better. I mean, if you're recruiting and your corporate philosophies don't align with that, then you're missing an opportunity to recruit some really talented people.
2: Yeah. 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 So,
1: yeah.
3: So, yeah. So, I, I briefly yeah. mentioned Brightline before, and, and that mm. talks about there is something like 80% of people are not engaged in the jobs that they're doing you know they're there because they have to be so if you can align the a person's personal objectives with that of the company that's when it clicks and you're able to together you know create something fantastic
2: well wow, that's a, a got your foot
1: in yeah. great stats 80% of people not engaged in that <laughs>
2: i've seen that in in loads of offices i've worked in you walk yeah. through
1: people yeah. are just zoned out right what is, that? what is it called? That's the Pareto principle, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
3: essentially that's the Pareto principle, which, by yeah. the way, is another thing I would advise people to do and it's really focusing on those key things. I used, okay. to, I literally had the Pareto principle printed out on my desk at work and every day I would run through it and say, what are the things that I need to focus on? So nice. that's an old tool, but it's a good one.
2: Yeah. I've got one more question just so we we'll rapid fire. What's the biggest emerging trend you see? So if you're looking out 10, 20 years from now, what's the the trend you think that's going to have the most impact? Is it digital? Is it people?
3: Yes. It's interesting because in the last 10 years, technology has changed so many things, changed the way that we work, the way that we live. It's had such a big impact. Then with COVID coming along, that's accelerated things even more. I'll give you one more stat to finish off on, but uh, you know, I, I think McKinsey reports you know, look at things like artificial intelligence and, and they estimate that between 400 and 800 million people will be displaced in, in their current roles in the next 10 years. So, it's a huge number and those people don't just disappear. You know, they, they can't afford to retire. They have to reskill. They have to change what they're doing. And companies now are also hiring more for how does somebody fit with a certain skill set into a team to achieve certain objectives. They're not hiring someone who is in HR and finance. They're hiring someone with those skills to fit into a team to develop something. So we call that the project economy because everything's being projectified. I think that's one of the big changes that we're really seeing now. Everything is being broken down into smaller and smaller projects our job at PMI is to make sure that we're, you know, upskilling or, 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 initially, skilling those people to make sure that they're able to deliver those projects.
1: Wow, it's interesting. There's some parallel thoughts there with, uh, you know, the approach that IDEO, IDEO, the product development industrial design firm that uses. You know, because when a client comes to them and asks them to develop a product, for example, then they'll bring in. All different disciplines and characteristics. I mean, the bus driver shows up, the physician shows up, you know, the engineer shows up, and all these different people from all different aspects come together to design the product. And it's for the user, you know. And so, this it's an interesting philosophy that has obviously breached or crossed other boundaries. Are you familiar with IDEO at all? You ever heard of the country? I'm not, no. How about you, Adam? Have you? I've heard of it, but I'm not familiar with it. I so don't when, I'm so, it exists. So when Steve Jobs was looking for the mouse, he went to IDEO and and worked with their team to develop the, the mouse. And it's a great story because the CEO of IDEO and Steve Jobs were good friends. As the story is told, when when they first came out with uh, the, the iPhone, the iPhone, and Steve actually hand-delivered the very first one to the CEO of IDEO, and I wish I could remember the guy's name, but a very cool individual. And it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Murphy, it's, it's Murphy's Law, right? <laughs> but if you can, and I would, you know, again, this is a sidebar, they did a feature, uh, 60 Minutes did a feature on it about the relationship with the IDO and, and Steve Jobs and the organization and their philosophy of that you have a customer, find out what the customer needs are, and then bring in not just the engineers and not just yeah. the computer software people, but bring in Everyday people that come in and they will use that product and you will end up with a product that works for everybody. Oh that's
2: yeah. cool. Ben, listen, thank you very, very much for coming on. That was yeah, great. Ben, that there were so many yeah. knowledge bombs you dropped on me there and stats. I'm like
1: <laughs> bloody spinning at the moment, really. Yeah, that one that hundred million dollar we I'm gonna go have a drink. <laughs> that's just I can still can get my head. That's a big number. Yeah. Yeah, Ben, thanks yeah. very much. It was just that's Awesome, Welcome. Man. It's
3: it's been great to to be here. I've got one little final plug for, yeah. for PMI. We normally have a huge amount of face to face events all around the world. In fact, my calendar keeps popping up and telling me where I should be, and I just shake my <laughs> head. Um, but we we we've now we're now doing these virtual events a series now. There's one per month for the next six months. The wow. next special guest we have is Trevor Noah from The Daily Show. So. He'd be a fantastic speaker uh, talking about the different projects that he has managed. And if you can talk about project management in an interesting way, that's when people listen and learn. And uh, that's, that's what we'll get with Trevor. So members and non-members can, can jump online and look at the, the PMI event series, virtual event series. We've had one last week, which was phenomenal. And jump on and, uh, and, and join the next ones.
2: If you give me, after the, we finish, if you give me the details on that, I'll make sure we plug that and put that out there so to our network because that's awesome. See, that's the, the PMI difference, right? And clearly that's the American side of it, right? Because they're great at promoting. Trevor Noah doing a PM presentation. I mean, that's exactly. just genius, man.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't wait. So that, that was excellent. I appreciated um, you know, speaking to you and, and your time. Um, thank you very much.
1: Before we go, though, people, if our listeners... Want to find out more about PMI and about you and all, obviously some of the members are. where do they go? How do they reach out to you?
3: PMI.org. That's our main website. So you can jump on there and that will sort of link you through to to many other things. And uh, you can look up, I can't remember if I'm Ben or Benjamin Breen on on LinkedIn, but
0: um, take a look. I'm sure you'll be able to connect with me in that way. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment.
1: Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software.
2: Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is that painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, Go to Blue Rhythm.com or call country code plus one six one two four six zero eight three zero five. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode twenty six
0: of the Edifice Complex podcast. And now back to the show, Adam. Another great interview, and uh, man, we're lucky. <laughs>
2: God, we are no. so lucky. The knowledge bombs and stats he drops on me. In my head is still spinning
1: about this. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about Ben, and, and I'm, when we're starting to see sort of a, a trend here, you know, with these high performing individuals, and that is, is that recognizing early on what you're good at and what you aren't good at, like, you know, and so you don't take away from your core journey that you've been on. Yeah. He went through the journey of getting an engineering degree, realized very quickly that although he had that, it wasn't his strength or his passion. And he recognized that and jumped on it. And we see that over and over and over again with individuals that have made a mark on the world and, and their particular areas saying, you know what, I have the education, but this is not where I want to see myself. I'm going to do something different.
2: Yeah, that's interesting because this place, one of the things that fascinates me, is called the sunk cost fallacy, right? So there's a sunk cost of four years of an engineering education there. Mm. And then, you know, you're five or four, three or four or five years into it, you realize it's not what you want to do. Yeah. So do you throw that away? No. You take that skill and parley it into something else called project management, right? So yeah, when he's in charge of a massive construction job, that foundational skill is still applicable. Absolutely. It's not enough on its own, but it's still super applicable, right?
1: Absolutely. So, you know,
2: some costs it is a fallacy, right? There's no doubt about it. You can build on something and it doesn't mean you found if you do something and find it's not quite new, you. you need to pivot. And move yeah. sideways or up or down and, and find the next space.
1: Yeah. And you made a nice comment about failure because that fits in, right? And mm. then, and recognizing that, that it's not your strength. is not a failure. It, in fact, it's, it's just information that you can use to make the next decision yeah. just and make a good decision, you know. But the first step is recognizing that. And yeah. he's a great example of that. He uh, used some words, chiasso. Uh, I had never heard that word before. Yeah, Every that's culture, a-
2: it's like, um, what's the Japanese word? Kabani or something? You know, with that, that continuous improvement. There are yeah. these like niche words. And I think project management has been very clever to latch onto some of them as concepts and incorporate them into their training. But yeah, it's, I love that, the whole concept of continual improvement. My big thing is, why can't buildings be like cars? All right, everyone gets triggered. I know cars are mass-produced and buildings aren't. But yeah. you know what? Doors, toilets, light fittings, pumps, valves, they're all mass-produced. Part, yeah, like, yeah, and they're all put in the same way believe it or not. So yeah. you know, this idea of constant improvement and continually refining processes, you know, that's what's absent in construction. The reason construction projects always finish late is because every job is chaos and every job is unique. There's no institutional mm. learning memory in construction, right? Construction is like an episode of Seinfeld. Everybody's got their own storyline. At the end of the day, no one learns anything. <laughs> 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 I robbed that from somewhere. But that uh, wasn't no. my original thought. But it is <laughs> so true. Yeah. yeah. What did he say? Nine out of 10 projects finish late.
0: True.
2: Yeah. Fact check. Yeah, true. And the, the one that blew my mind was for every billion dollar spent in construction, $114 million is wasted.
1: Yeah. And that's the average. He was saying like $134 million lost in Australia on every billion that's spent. What's big dollars, people? Like that's huge. You take ten of those projects or a hundred of those projects. The massive, massive loss of the work potential of that money. You know, we talk about exergy in, in energy systems. Well, there's yeah. exergy in economic systems too. Holy crap, what could you do with that kind of money, you know?
2: My old project management professor would have said to me, Adam, that's a misallocation of resources. That is waste. That's inefficiency. He'd he'd be having an epileptic fit over that number, and he was probably aware of it, I guess, to some degree. But
1: well, you know. yeah, it is. So we talked about it, you know, <laughs> later on. And so you think about if you're on the board of directors of some corporation that has to explain to your shareholders that you've just lost a hundred million dollars on a billion dollar project or whatever. <laughs> Holy crap! Like there, like there, seriously, hands would fly. You know, there would be questions about people's competency. There would be questions about corruption. There would be, like, every freaking skeleton would be taken through the closet to figure out why we lost $100 million on a billion-dollar project. That's insane.
2: Yeah, and I bet that dude still gets his bonus, right?
1: (laughs) God bless the corporate culture. (laughs) Yeah, God bless corporations. But
2: Again, this is one of the reasons I love doing a podcast and and a blog because this whole situation frustrates me and it's fascinating at the same time. And you think there has to be an answer for this, right? There has to be a way for things to get better. And things have got better. So I've been working since 1980. Things have got better and stayed the same all at the same time. It is a fascinating parallel. Yes, I've got iPhones, we've got CAD, we've got BIM. Yeah, it's the same old clashes on site. I'm losing track of the times I see, you know, electrical sockets behind pipes. How many more times does that have to happen? In fact, when guys used to draw and girls used to draw drawings by hand and coordinate on site, you didn't see that half as much as you do now with a BIM model,
1: right? Yeah.
2: So, you know, there's a way to go here. Now, that makes it an exciting environment to work in because you can affect change if you're awesome. Yeah. All right, that's the opportunity here. So anyone who's wondering, should you come into this business, project management or project development or design and construction? The answer is yes, because there is so much to do and improve. If you've got something to add, you'll be able to add it. So, yeah, yeah. please jump in. And the other thing to say is you know, I was quite blown away by the scale of the PMI, Project Management Institute. They yeah, are they're
1: big. Really 600,000 members. 1.5 million people certified. Yeah. Remember that there's uh 14,000 volunteers. That's, that's amazing. And eight managing directors. So you think, take about some of these other organizations that, uh, yeah, it's hard to even get a managing director to, to stick around. They've now they've got eight. Although he did say that six of those were, were relatively new. He brings a real interesting perspective to not only to the podcast, Yeah as you know from his career point of view and the things that he's worked on but you know like people need to understand the scale of PMI is just no, obviously not just construction but they represent so many other professional fields
2: yeah I and mean, it's truly worldwide and it's truly multidiscipline. a lot of organizations say that but actually not many truly are but this I'd say PMI truly are
1: Yeah. And I really like the fact that when we, you know, I asked him the question, like what makes a good project manager and talks about soft skills, communication skills. Yeah. People, I got to tell you, man, you can be the most brilliant person in the world, you know, and you can pat yourself on the back, but if you can't fricking communicate, you're done.
2: Yeah. Good luck. You
1: know, and you can try bullying your way like certain people we know in the political Mm. systems you're just going to cause conflict. You can't bully your way through. I mean, you try to manage a billion dollar project or a four billion dollar, whatever the numbers are. Yeah. People need to get along. There has to be some cohesiveness within the conflicts that occur, and resolving those conflicts is not, you're not going to do it no. uh, without communication skills. So, yeah, what's changed is management
2: by shouting doesn't really work anymore.
1: No, I mean, people won't stick around. They're going to basically tell you "f off" because okay. they, there's always some other opportunities around. Now we're in an interesting place in time because of COVID, and of course, job security is whoa. I, you know, I'm glad I'm retired because I just, <laughs> yeah, you, you know. But if you're starting your career or midway through your career, you know, and, and you get some senior guy who's a bully and uh, narcissist that uh, wants to rule by, you know hammer it's hard to tell someone like that to piss off you know you're gonna it find another when, job right yeah when the economy
2: is bad you do have to put up with a lot of bad stuff but the economy won't always be bad you know this this time will pass and I personally believe once this time passes let's say COVID resolves in the next six months say or even after that there's gonna be so much pent up whoopee frustration I think people are gonna go nuts you're gonna be see like a mini boom you know once people are allowed out yeah, and can get back to some norma- normality. There'll be pent up projects. There'll be pent up capital expenditure, and pent up demand for a good time. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I look at this COVID moment as like somebody dropped the deck of cards, and as we start to pick up the cards and get and it's going to get yeah. reshuffled. Right? Yeah. The reshuffling of all kinds of systems, economic systems, political systems, anything that has anything that has to do with anything the projects the cards get shuffled and that also includes people, right? Yeah. So, you know, if you have 52 decks in the card and those represent the soft skills that exist or people skills, individuals, that will get shuffled and those cards are going to get dealt. And if you're able to attract, because you're obviously, you've changed your your bench, your bench strength is, is no longer what it used to be. People who are looking for the the high quality cards you know they're going to try to do whatever they can to attract it. So there's a huge opportunity coming up for people that are looking for lateral or vertical change in their careers. Yeah,
2: absolutely, yeah. man. That was a great interview. So see you on the next one, oh, So I'm pretty pumped
0: about this one. Adam, always great, man. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex Podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit podcast dot com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.